HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Will Nitza, founder and CEO of IQ Bar, the plant-based protein company for your brain and body. Will started IQ Bar online in 2017 with a Kickstarter after college and quickly started racking up retail doors with the great-tasting, low-sugar, low-carb, plant-based protein bar. Now the company is about 50% e-com and 50% retail, selling in 8,000 doors across the U.S. Welcome, Will. Uh, You're welcome. I think um, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with you and your shower thoughts. Um, I think a lot of them know IQ Bar for sure, but more and more people in my LinkedIn network, at least, um, are starting to recognize you from your LinkedIn postings. And I think just a little credit to you. I like the fact that you're, you know, I understand, I I guess I have a sort of a, um, the prolific posters where there isn't much thought, where it's just like a kind of a quote or something that like is somewhat self-explanatory, I find to be sort of like algorithm hunting, but you um, post thoughtful things and you actually have so many thoughts in one post and um, I like it. I just want to say I like it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, And you said something in one of those where you talked about thinking in public, not building in public. And I think you summed up for me the difference between the sort of LFG, you know, we're crushing, look at us, look at this, look at me. Uh, That's what building in public has become, this almost sort of false humility, if, if there's any humility in it at all. But what you're doing is more, you know, sort of getting us thinking about things. Um, some of them are kind of funny. But for the most part, I think, um, I think it's useful. And I think it's educational, I guess. And that's maybe why I like it. And so I guess I'm wondering, my first question to before we get into anything IQ bar is about, was that an intentional content plan or did you just start thinking publicly? And now that you do it, do you feel pressure to keep it going, pressure to come up with clever stuff? Do you ever get nervous that you've said something over a line of some sort? Like, where are you, I guess, with that? Yeah. So, um, basically I'll I'll tell you exactly why I decided to start doing it. Basically we were, my wife and I, who 
she works in the company too. She's our head of marketing. Uh, and one of her friends who we were uh, paying to help us with a few PR related uh, things, we were just sitting there after work one day, th- shooting the shit about what, um, like in this, as a CPG company, you don't do things that are all that PR worthy all that often, right? Like mm-hmm. what is for sure. cover? It covers fundraisers uh-huh. and that's it. Acquisitions. Pretty much. Or, yeah. or acquisitions. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And so like launching a flavor, doing anything that is maybe meaningful to you is not actually meaningful to publications. So mm-hmm. that's kind of brands like mine and yours probably bang. We bang our heads against the wall trying to figure out how do, how are people going to cover us? And the, the answer is they won't. And even if they did, it's not all that useful or relevant. Um, it always right. drives less actual results than you want it to. Mm-hmm. And so then the question becomes, well, okay, what if you then you know, take control and become your own publication, quote unquote, how would you do that? Where would you do that? And what angle would you take when doing that? And, Mm -hmm. and then sort of the conversation went to a place of, okay, what are the content saturated uh, channels? And what are the content deficient channels? Meaning what what channels have more content than they do have demand for than they have demand Mm -hmm. for content and vice versa. And so like Instagram has more content than it has demand for content. But something like LinkedIn and TikTok at the time were the inverse of that. They had mostly lurkers, quote unquote, or Mm -hmm. consumers of information, and they under-indexed on creators of information, which, of course, is valuable to the creators because the platform will force out your content to more people. Mm -hmm. And I just think it was a good arbitrage opportunity. So if you look at LinkedIn it's actually massive. Like everyone has one. It has this legacy sort of, people have this legacy perception of, oh, it's, you know, you upload your resume or whatever and that's it. And it doesn't have a reputation for being a a place where you have a feed of useful content. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, I don't want to do the TikTok thing all that much because I don't want to take videos of myself dancing or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I like writing and the written word and I like medium form too. So Twitter mm-hmm. wasn't a great fit because yeah. um, I don't uh, – pithy, quick hits are not as exciting to me as like medium form, decently thought out thoughts. And so I was like, all right, it's content deficient. It aligns with the way I like to produce thoughts. Um, yep. Why don't I just try it? Like why don't I just write a post every single day? Mm-hmm. Um for a while and just like see if it works. And I also had this huge backlog of, I think this is probably Thoughts. relatable to you and, and, and any entrepreneur. Yeah. I just have all these, you know, when yeah. you go throughout a day, because there is no playbook for something yeah. like starting and running a CPG brand, you have all these thoughts where you're like, Oh, that's how that works. Cause no one ever right. actually told you. And mm-hmm. whenever that happens, I, I actually mark it down. I'm like, yeah, the insight light bulb goes off. I write it down in a Google Doc. And so I just have this chicken scratch Google Doc of like hundreds and hundreds of random like insights I've developed. Yeah. And so it's not all that hard to create content because it's like, oh, I'll just pluck one of those and flesh right. it out. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the why. But, of course, you run out at some point. And you're like, oh, crap. How do I create that next thought? There's some There's some – I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like – when it's not when the means become the end, but it's kind of like when the something becomes the something, like when we, when we, when we mistake the goal for the, for the tactic, you know, I I don't remember the exact quote, but sometimes I feel like that's what happens with something like a LinkedIn. So similar to you, I mean, I am, I think twice your age, but I don't have any personal social media and I've never had a Facebook, never been on Twitter and Instagram, you know, the brand has, I don't, I feel very comfortable on LinkedIn because I feel like it is me thinking out loud and it's, I can speak to people in a different way and I can, and I feel like my part of this community is somewhat to be a helpful, supportive friend to a lot of people in it. Um, What starts to happen though, if I start reading these things on here's how you should post and it should be every day. And this is how you, 
then it starts to feel like I'm like forcing myself to come up with something clever to say. And candidly, I don't think anyone has something clever to say every day. I, I, I really don't. Um, and so, you know, I guess that's, that's where I was sort of wondering, like, if you start to feel, cause you don't strike me as a guy who's going to put something out that isn't, that feels a little half-assed to yourself. No, no. And, it's it's a much more like clean regimented platform because everyone has a reputation tied to it and so you, you mm-hmm. it's but even within that there's a lot of riffraff content uh-huh. um, yeah. and I think a lot of it is due to what you're saying it's that forcing mechanism I I, ha- I have to put something out <clears throat> so I'm gonna force it and it's not gonna be good and you're right I, I like could never do that. Right. And it's a little bit challenging if you put out good stuff or what at least you think is good stuff, mm-hmm. then it has to keep being good. You, right. You of course. Of like, that's the pressure. Yeah. You corner yourself a little bit. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good and bad. I actually do, oddly, that maybe this is a perverse trait of mine or whatever, but I actually do like forcing myself into mm. things. Like I mm-hmm. – because if – if left to my own devices, I would do less thing. It's kind of like anything, right. like anything it hard physically. A for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't want to work out, but I actually like having a forcing mechanism right. of working out, and it's kind of yep. similar with with writing. But yeah, it it's it is tough, and so you have to come up with different things. I remember I listened to an interview with Mr. Beast, and it's like, how mm. do you keep putting out? Like hit after hit after hit. And he's like, I've been through all these. You have to basically create ways to generate inspiration, like exogenously, right? So like Mm -hmm. go consume content that will give you ideas or go have experiences that will give you ideas or go to talk to people that will give you ideas. And you need to create an architecture such that the output will be ideas. Otherwise, you're never going to have a constant stream of ideas. Right. No, I think about the podcast, right? I mean, as we talked about, I we're on episode 199. So I've I have 200 episodes starting in March of 2018 interviewing experts, founders, service providers, right? Like there's some people listening now who've listened to every single one, which is crazy to me. But I take notes on every single show and I don't have, I don't write out show notes. I don't make, you know, a post about every show. Like there's, it's almost like I could write a book with what I've learned from the 200 people that I've interviewed. Um, But I think it's funny because you're, you know, you're saying, I was like, oh, I should train myself to like the discipline of this. (laughs) Like, but I just find it, it's like overwhelming for me to even think about, you know? Like there's multiple ways to do it. And again, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying if you're operating under the assumption that you want to create like whatever the cadence is, let's say daily, like many people are really, really good at curating. And and Mm -hmm. so they're not actually generating their own insight. They might... Mm -hmm. They might interview people and and they say, here's the most interesting thing that person said. And it's novel, but it wasn't their thought. And that's still incredibly valuable. So it doesn't have to be a thought, original thought after original thought. Yeah. No, I was wondering if I could use AI and just put in all of my every document from the last 200 shows with all of my notes and if it would just – if I could just ask it to summarize it into 300 insights. Uh, one other question I have before we get into actually like your product and sales that's LinkedIn related is personal brand versus product brand. And this is something that, you know, I understand these days it's really hard for those of us who are not celebrities to compete you know, our CAC is just essentially too high compared to theirs. Um, So a lot of it is like, if you don't have a celebrity, kind of you got to be, like you said, right? If if you're not going to get a lot of press, be the publication. Um, And I see a lot of founders doing it and I think it has value. It certainly has value. Um, I've found that buyers are more likely to 
reach out to me. You know, it builds goodwill in the community for sure. I don't know. I have ambivalence around connecting the brand too much to me personally, you know, just because I want it to be this thing that doesn't, that I don't need to be the, I want it to live without me quite comfortably, if that makes sense. Um, And so I guess one of my questions for you is like, do you see your building, your personal brand? Obviously it's an asset to building the product brand, but where do you see the line a little bit and how, how do you kind of like see yourself sort of releasing or separating yourself from it? Or, and are, and are you seeing that it's there, those are two completely compartmentalized things? I think they can be and they cannot be. And like either setup could, could work. Ideally, Mm -hmm. like if you were just to look at it it objectively, ideally they would be quite aligned. Like for me, for instance, like we try to create brain and body focused stuff. And so like me trying to be witty or insightful Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's like the obvious like connecting of the dots there. Yep. Um, and, you know, like the dude wipes guy, Sean, is like silly and tells <laughs> bathroom jokes duty. and like yeah. that works. Like, you know, it's like mm-hmm. that's aligned. Right. So it's like I do think there's value in being aligned. I, I don't actually think you have to be, but um, I, I do think there's value. I, this one falls under the bucket of stuff that I would I would say, like, it's risky, but who cares? Like, there's a right. lot of things I would say risky dot 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 but who cares so like (laughs) for so like connecting your personal brand to your regular brand it might be risky in the sense that for example if someone wanted to acquire you they might say well Mm -hmm. will this brand survive without that person Mm -hmm. i don't know the answer like maybe maybe not so it's risky in that sense but who cares like it right like what how else are you gonna do it right yeah yeah, you're not gonna not do it because you doing it helps you acquire more customers more cheaply. And so you'd be dumb to not do it. So just do it. And, and like, yep. it, it, like a lot of the fears we have, just like anything in life, you fabricate and mm-hmm. maybe that fabrication then ultimately aligns with reality. Maybe it doesn't, but it's a similar concept to like, which I think we might talk about later around like platform versus single mm-hmm. form factor. Like, for us, is is it a risk to have play in multiple categories? Yeah, but who cares? Like, right. um, if you're going to build, a, if you think you can build a bigger business faster doing that, um, do it. Do it. Do it. Yep. If you want to do it. Um, yeah. So that's right. kind of how I think about it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes I over, I over justify not doing things because they're not comfortable. So I come up with a very logical explanation to sort of satisfy my own, you know, not wanting to do something a little bit. So I'm hearing you loud and clear. On a that lot part. of it's like the cringe factor too, right? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, it is, you, it is cringy to do certain things. I had one post about it. Cause I think about this a lot actually, where there's, there's all these things that I think are annoying or cringeworthy, but, but mm-hmm. they objectively work. Mm-hmm. And Again, just purely objectively, what works is what matters. If, if you're just mm-hmm. thinking about, like, not not is this cool or do I respect this or whatever, if you're just <laughs> thinking about what is effective, like, in a business context, that's kind of all that matters. So I've tried to get over what, like, my own ego or what I think is cool or respectable mm-hmm. and just look at what objectively worked, right? So that LFG type stuff, which I have a similar reaction to you. Does it work though? Seemingly at least somewhat. Uh, I, will I do it because of that? No, I'll look for another way to get a commensurate level of effectiveness. But if I couldn't, couldn't, would I ever rule that like kind of angle out? No, oh, I don't rule any angle out. It's because at the end of the day, what what's effective is what matters. Well, especially I read this incredible post months ago on like the Kardashians, right? And it was 
this whole, it was when one of them got in trouble for something and, you know, they're Teflon, right? And it, and the post was so cogent because she was like, listen, is their brand is and never has changed from, you know, publicity at all costs, money, and like showiness. So you've never heard any one of them apologize for any of the gaffes. You've never heard any one of them sort of like mea culpa anything, right? Because to them, it's super aligned with the brand when, you know, people hate them essentially, because that is part of the brand. So it goes back to that alignment, I guess, to your point, if part of your brand is this like rocket ship, yay, you know, you know, crush it, kill it thing, then it's aligned, whether it's cringy or not, when it's, I think when you get the cringe is when something feels forced or pushed, um, or something feels totally unself-aware. And that's where I think a lot of us are like, um, the crush it thing though, is I actually think is not objectively the best way to, to do it because what happens when you stop crushing it? Or what happens when you hit a rough patch? It's not a diversified strategy, right? Right. Whereas just saying interesting stuff is diversified. You're not dependent on quote unquote crushing it or getting new doors or whatever. So I'd rather have, it's like any, it's like a stock portfolio. Like (laughs) if all your money is in Tesla, like, and then, yeah. Well, it goes back to sustainability, right? It's like monoculture. (laughs) <laughs> you got to have a lot of diverse crops to have a really good ecosystem. And I think, you know, a lot of people sort of start to feel like, you know, it feels like a little protesting too much in, in some ways. Um, all right. I want to talk about the bars for a minute before we take a break. And I, I, I want to go to something I heard you say or read you say, I don't know which one, but, you know, Launching a bar um, in, you know, what, 2017, was it? Yeah, we we did a Kickstarter December 17th through Jan 18 was our first sales. Yeah. So, you know, very big category, lots of competition. Um, But I, you know, I'm sort of in this opposite camp where I'm creating a new category that, you know, has its challenges for sure. but you were very clear. You knew it was a very big competitive market. You knew there was a higher percentage of both success and failure. And you just made your job to sort of outcompete the incumbents. And from my understanding, the way you took that is that you, A, rode a wave of keto and like functionality hard. People buy bars for particular functions. And you started online, which is, you know, there was a lot of space for you to win there. And you kind of skipped that traditional playbook of like, you start in your local health food store, then you go to the Whole Foods region, then you go to the, you know, like, it seems like you did three things pretty differently from the folks before you. And I'm just wondering, A, if that's somewhat of a good synopsis, but B, you know, how much thought went into it. And, and when you're going into a very big, very competitive category, what are the things that you're trying to keep in mind as you're doing that? Totally. Um, yeah. And and then there's like the whole financing piece, which I actually think we did somewhat counterintuitively as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you want to make an Airbnb or whatever, where it's you're you're creating this entirely new thing and it's going to be this, if like probably not going to work, but if it works, it's some giant outsized result because you're the only one there, or you're the first one there, or whatever. Like that, just there's no question that is the way to get the biggest absolute results. Mm-hmm. I've never been interested in that because I've never wanted to be caught manufacturing demand. Um, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to service demand because I think I can beat everyone else because I think mm-hmm. I can just outperform them. I think I can out-operate them. 
And so I just rather go head to head and compete with people for that large bolus of demand, wherever it is. Right. Yep. But that's just like my like demeanor or predilections or whatever. Um, and so everyone always says, you know, bars is, are so competitive, but that's to me has always been like drinks are competitive. Well, yeah, but yeah. sometimes you want lemonade and sometimes you want mm-hmm. a Coke Zero. Those are radically different. It's not actually useful to say something's competitive at that level. You you have to right. delve down at least one or two more tiers. So, mm-hmm. okay, if, if bars are really competitive, cool. I, I don't care. What what about like low sugar bars? Okay, they're right. less competitive. Okay, mm-hmm. what about low sugar high plant protein bars. Well, actually that's not all that competitive. You know, Mm -hmm. let's say there's five people and the lack of the competitiveness under indexes relative to the market size or the demand from the market. So, okay. So, so now it's not competitive. So Mm -hmm. the whole, this is competitive is completely moot. Once you go one or two tiers down, um, not to say that that's like, I'm oversimplifying it obviously. And it's not, exactly like there still are substitutes within even that sub sub category where someone might just have a cliff bar instead of ours and and whatnot. But generally speaking, that's how I think about it. And so, yeah, so I, I like playing in big competitive categories. I think it's less competitive than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And then on the channel, on the channel strategy piece, like I, something I'm obsessed with is optionality. Like I never want to be pigeonholed yeah. in a go-to-market context. And so what I was really, really interested in is how can I create something, some asset that I can sell, and feasibly I could sell it anywhere. Um, online, food service, grocery, big box, Walmart, but also Whole Foods, international. Mm-hmm. Like what is that thing? And in order to, for that to be the case, it has to be shelf-stable, Yep. <laughs> uh, a favorable weight to price point ratio, mm-hmm. long shelf life, minimum 12 months. You're literally describing the opposite of my product, <laughs> which no, no. And I, I just actually want to call this out because people who listen to me on a regular basis, like we are going into another category. And these were all of the things we're like, okay, we've established our brand and we've made this like really nice community around this thing that aside from the lightweightness doesn't, you know, it's got a short shelf life. It has no home in the store. You know, no one knows what to do with it. You can't sell it online. It will not work, you know, in mass, all of that stuff. It's very funny that you're saying it, but everyone like we are, we're getting there and the next one the next one's going to have all this stuff. So anyway, it's just, it made me laugh. Totally. As we were talking about and, and I don't, I don't think it's all, I'm not so absolutist about all this stuff. Like I think actually quote unquote downsides are a moat in and of themselves because mm-hmm. other people can't do it. So yep. I, like, for example, it's really hard and that sucks because it's hard, but yep. it's also good because other people can't do hard things. Right. Um, for sure. And maybe you can so, mm-hmm. but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how we thought about it. But online is, was the easiest mostly because you can scale from zero to one online just way faster than anywhere else. That just mm-hmm. is the case. So, um, you know, we, we did a Kickstarter, sold between Kickstarter and Indiegogo $90,000 worth of product. That was fake pro like phantom product didn't exist. Mm-hmm. We sold 90 K right out of the gate. And we're like, whoa, okay. And I was, I, at that point was like, not like waffling on whether to go full time on it. Cause I had a job, but I quit my job. Um, and then on the back, okay. So here's where the, the fundraising piece is interesting, which I think is not talked about enough. Um, I have friends who started tech companies and they raised 3 million bucks on a $10 million pre-money valuation with a PowerPoint deck. And it was, mm-hmm. it was at, right at the same time I was trying to raise money. And I was like, it's like laughable how different that is relative to, to CPG. And this was, of course, a different time also. Mm-hmm. The we were in years. the, the, the mm-hmm. heat of the, the go-go years, which is was candidly great um, in retrospect. But <laughs> so I was like, all right, we're worth $4 million if we can do X, Y, Z in the kick, Kickstarter, which is, of course, is 
largely yeah. arbitrary. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, like that first valuation is is basically made up, but but not totally made up. Like mm-hmm. there is just a going rate for a company that let's mm-hmm. say has generated some early sales and has a good founder or whatever. So I was like, all right, that's the number. Um, and then I, you, once you pick it, you stick to it. And then we raised 600 something K on the back half of the um, Kickstarter. And that was really, really critical because I had been for years, even before the Kickstarter, working on this alone at nights and on weekends. I couldn't convince anyone to do it with me because it was not that sexy of an idea. Mm-hmm. But I was like, all right, I can, I can hire a couple people now and we can start sprinting. And so, and e-commerce was the way to start sprinting yeah. uh, because we, we could, you know, get, we parlayed the Kickstarter into a website. We parlayed that into an Amazon presence and then just yep. started seeing what, what, what happened. And at that time, Amazon and, and of course the, a big tailwind at that point was keto. So we right. just sort of coincidentally, we, we created a low sugar, low carb, low net carb product for the brain purposes, right? Because having a bunch of carbs, you know, and spiking insulin and all that makes your brain work less good or less mm-hmm. well, um, <laughs> you know, and yeah, you have that 2 p.m. crash. And that was why I was interested in low carb and, and keto. Well, it just so happened the rest of the country got obsessed with it right. for weight loss purposes and other purposes. And so we just like found ourselves at the intersection of this massive macro trend and just started like ripping on Amazon. Um, Like, and we were only one of maybe three, four products, like I said, in that sub sub category of bars on Amazon doing that. And and it just, you know, it was like 20 K a month and 40 K a month and 80 K a month. Um, And that was how we scaled up really, really quickly. That's amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and um, when we get back, we're going to talk all about innovation and fun things like that. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Will Nitza, founder and CEO of IQ Bar. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about sort of riding the wave of keto. Um, I, you know, Jared and Peter are investors in my company from RX Bar. Their story obviously is you know, amazing. I've had, um, you know, the magic spoon guys on here. Like there's definitely something to be said for building a good enough product at the right time of a dietary wave. And just, as you said, like letting it rip, um, they have all sort of said like, yeah, the, I mean, there was just this, you know, this massive trend of people and it almost didn't have to even be good at the beginning, right? Because the keto people notoriously don't even care that much about taste and they are notoriously sticky and they're notoriously like purple cows. Like they spread the wealth. They talk about their diet a lot and they share their products a lot. 
Um, are you surprised at how long the keto thing lasted? Is it still going on? I mean, it was, it's, you know, I was around when like the Scarsdale diet was, you know, I was around when there was like, you should only eat carbs. And then it switched to, you should never eat carbs in the eighties. And then it was like, you gotta, you know, there were diets where like you skipped protein altogether. I mean, it's really been back and forth and back and forth, uh, protein, carb, protein, carb for, you know, the last 30, 40 years. So were you aware of it at the time? Did you tailor it at the time? Um, you obviously started with the keto thing, like you said, because of carbs and brain, but clearly there was something else that people were looking for, you know, what's happening to keto now, I guess is one of my questions. Yeah. I think it was like a, it was supposed to be a two or three year trend that was a seven year trend. And so, yes, it surprised, it surprised the upside of is it two over? plus X. Um, no, it isn't. I think it'll, I would be lying if I told you I had a crystal ball and I could tell you exactly how it'll morph. But like there, I think where it is now and where it'll continue to be is a large niche of people. People will cycle on and off. Like it just mm-hmm. is a wildly effective way to lose weight, right? So at the, right. at the physiological level, like biology isn't changing. So right. it's never like it's going to be big because it's effective. Any effective right. thing will never fully die. Um, and, but I think it'll be, I think like the general consensus is it's very rigid. It's very militaristic. Most people aren't good at keeping a super rigid diet like that. That's so restrictive. Um, and so it, I don't see it like truly getting back into like the mass mass market, but I think there'll be a very large niche. I mean, still you can, you can look at the data while, while keto search terms have, have declined slightly. They're still a lot of people looking for, for keto stuff. Um, so, and certainly looking to, you know, I mean, the first thing you do when you feel a little bit like, ugly is you cut out carbs. Yeah. And I think it's just a reframing, honestly, like if you talk to any brand that rode the keto wave, like it's not like this. Well, I I think in some cases it is existentially a problem because they were keto, whatever, like the Mm -hmm. diet was in their name. Yep. So that's a problem, but um, but for the most part, it's pivoting and reframing to low sugar and like low sugar, low net carb, and and maybe not even the latter part. Like low sugar is mm-hmm. is just an evergreen strategy. Yep. For again, physiological reasons. Yeah. Another thing that I've read that you said was you know, and I mentioned it earlier in the show is, and I thought this was a really interesting insight that like people reach for bars for a goal. And I started, when I read it, I started thinking about myself. Like I have my airport bar. I have my midday bar, you know, my, I have different bars for different needs, you know, (laughs) and it's an interesting insight. You know, you, you either want just to like a fun snack where you don't feel, you know, or you're going someplace and, or it's a specific dietary thing. You know, my son just took, you know, his law exams and, you know, he's sitting there for four hours. It's, you know, and he unwrapped his bars so it wouldn't like make noise type of thing. But I'm wondering, as you're thinking about innovation, you're, you're good at the social listening, you're out there hearing and looking around and seeing, but there are all these different groups of people and they all have different goals and they're reaching for bars for different reasons. So what was the process that you used to sort of lean into which group of people you wanted to please more? You know, I'm sure you were somewhat scientific about it, knowing you the little that I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first idea was brain food. That was like the original concept. And, um, there was, it was like a hypothesis that I didn't know the answer to, which is do people want brain food? They obviously want a healthy brain. Otherwise they wouldn't take Prevage, you know, fish oil mm-hmm. and Prevage and all these supplements. They obviously care about thinking well and not getting Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and neurodegenerative disease and all that. But very quickly to your point, it gets into a form factor discussion. So oftentimes mm-hmm. people make the mistake of conflating uh, 
a desire someone has with the wrong form factor. Mm. So, um, like, I'll give you an example. Caffeine. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, people want to drink caffeine, not eat Mm -hmm. caffeine. Generally speaking. Are there a couple exceptions? Yeah, but not really. Um, Like, exceptions are so few that it's almost, like, de minimis. So... That's kind of interesting, right? They have this desire to stimulate themselves, their brain and their heart rate and all that, but they don't have a desire to do it in a ready-to-eat food context. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that was the original hypothesis of, like, okay, do people want brain health via, like, a ready-to-eat food? And the answer is they kind of do, but it's actually incredibly nuanced. What we learned about bars is what you just said, which is, People eat bars for very specific functional reasons. And it's always protein and sugar is always like one and well, there's taste, which is sort of jockeys for one and two, depending on the crowd, right? You you made made a good point of like the keto crowd. Sometimes it's not one. Often it's right. not one if people are yep. really diet forward. But often it is, right? So like taste, protein, sugar are always gonna jockey for one, two, three. And then mm-hmm. everything else is a distant second but then there's there's so many like sub components and basically what we learned about bar bar people is they're they're very diet specific they're very goal specific and they're label readers Mm -hmm. there are other categories where people are not label readers like when you buy chips you're not really a label reader Um, barbecue sauce not a label and even the yeah yeah, and even the same person Mm -hmm. might might not be a label reader on barbecue sauce, but they are on bars. So that's that's yep. how crazy it is. Yeah. Um, and so we just kept, so like I said, I'm obsessed with optionality. So I wanted to be able to, if I could, thread the needle across clean label, keto, the brain element, high plant protein, vegan profile overall. I wanted to see if I could thread that needle because it would allow us to pitch ourselves in in different ways to different people, which yep. certain people would say is a bad strategy. Um, actually, I chatted with Peter Rahal about about yeah. this, and he's like, yep. it's too much. Mm-hmm. And I don't even necessarily disagree with him because he has this incredible proof point of simplicity. like, And that just wins. Like, ride that horse as hard right. as you can, and you, that's a way to win. But where I would disagree it's is a way to win. I actually... Right. I, th- I actually think the like omnivaluable path is is also a way to win. Yeah. No, I mean, first of all, I like all the when when we talk to people who've had and you know again like they've clearly done something incredible and but they've done it when in one way. If you talk to Daniel from Kind Bar, he would have a very different right. He would say the minute that we made our bars chocolate, they had chocolate the whole kind bar world changed. Right. Or, you know, and I, and on that note, I remember like when we were in the Chobani incubator, the Bonza folks came. So this was, they were like, this is 2018. So they were very early into their trajectory too, you know, and they had, they had a, just the same product and they had a, a way of pitching it to the people that, you know, wanted didn't, you know, wanted gluten-free pasta and then other people who wanted heartier pasta or whatever the other thing was. And I remember just watching like on the screen, they were talking about just, you know, if you do have the ability, I mean, I think our product is very similar. We, we happen to be keto and we happen to be vegan, but we didn't make the sauce for the keto community or people who were vegan. And we have had a hard time sort of settling in on messaging because sometimes when it is too many things, no one knows what the hell it is. Um, but I think in your case, if you're, if there are three things that pretty much the bulk of bar people are looking for and you're able to be all three and just like put a little bit of the thumb on the scale, depending on how you're, you know, who you're talking to, where you're talking to them, you know, that that I don't think you're taking away from your simplicity, but have you found it to be challenging? Well, so I think that what often people struggle with too is they say, well, okay, if you're going to focus on sugar, protein, 
and things like that, well, then you're not different. Then you are going to get lost. And, Mm -hmm. And what I would say is, and again, this is kind of form factor specific to bars. Actually, that's not true. You just, those are like, uh, table stakes, right? So mm-hmm. someone has to check, check, check before you can even start the discussion of like right. what makes you different. So it's mm-hmm. total table stakes. And so what we found is like the brain element is like a nice rounding element. It's a door closer, not a door opener. So mm-hmm. it check protein. What's the protein source? Okay, plant. Okay, cool. Check. Uh, d- like what is the carb count? What's the sugar count? Check, check, check. Okay, cool. Now tell me like why you're different. But if you don't mm-hmm. check all those five boxes, you're never even going to have the asking. option to pitch it. And, and some yeah. people don't even care beyond the first four. They're like, I don't care about the brand thing. Like, give me a box. And that's, right. that's cool too. Um, so, so, and it's, it kind of reminds me of the all birds thing. It's an eco-friendly shoe, but 90% don't care. They're just like, Oh, it's right. a comfortable shoe. You have to win on the shoe being a good shoe and comfortable. And then, yeah, some subset will get really into the eco-friendliness and and whatnot. And the last thing I would say is oftentimes people don't fully appreciate that, that the confluence of multiple things that are in and of themselves generic makes a product Mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. So if you can be keto but also paleo friendly and also vegan and also high protein Mm -hmm. each one of those things in a silo is is fairly generic but when you can thread the needle now the confluence of all of them makes it special yeah no i like that and i like the door opener traits versus the door closer traits and i think sometimes you know we get high on our own supply a little bit and we forget which is which and it's it's a good thing to keep in mind. And and you know, speaking of that, I think I remember in the Chobani incubator, the head of innovation sat down with us and he was like, So you know what my job is, right? And we're like, uh-huh, like you're the head of innovation at Chobani. And he's like, Right. And I'm here to tell you to stop innovating. And we, I was like, What? You know, he was like, You have you've already over innovated. Like no one knows what chimichurri is. No one knows what, you know, Romesco is. What the hell is tahini? You know, you, you live in a bubble, like time to make something that just like people know what it is and they know what to do with it. And that is what we actually tried to make a barbecue sauce and it was really freaking good. And it was keto and vegan and it had no added sugar. It was just like dates. It was super delicious, but we learned very quickly that the barbecue, the people that, that sort of Venn diagram of people who really love barbecue sauce, but people who don't want to eat a lot of sugar was not very high or it wasn't enough to, to, it was, it did not become a gateway skew to the rest of the line. And it also felt a little bit somehow off with the rest of the line. Um, and so, you know, again, I read something, that you had said, you know, and when you're making a bar, for all the people out there listening who are going to make a bar, people want blueberry, chocolate, peanut butter. You don't have to go hard into sriracha, you know, yuzu, cacao, coffee. Like, try to stick pretty much, you know, it's like the Chobani blueberry yogurt it's 80% of their sales or whatever it is. Um, so when you were talking about innovation though, you know, instead of necessarily innovating on flavors, um, you came up with another product. I want to hear a little bit about that. And I, you know, I also want to hear if people basically like blueberry chocolate and peanut butter with a couple of others, where, where do you innovate? Yeah. Well, so yeah, this gets into the whole platform versus single form factor, which again, I'll go back to RX Bar because it's an easy example of like they rode that to a hundred plus million dollars selling bars and, and that's awesome. They caught lightning in a bottle though. And I, at one point sat down and I, I went through that. There's that dichotomy of, okay, do you just try and become the biggest bar company possible or mm-hmm. do you try and become a platform and what's on a risk adjusted basis? like your best odds of getting to that, whatever the figure is, let's say a hundred million. 
And basically what I determined is on a risk-adjusted basis, you're more likely to get there via the platform approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also all these other halo effects, like the ability to upsell different form factors that are Mm non-cannibalizing. And so we did something that was very different um, from other bar companies in terms of moving into new categories. We moved into hydration. Right. Basically, we're interested in, (laughs) didn't make a ball, didn't make bites, we didn't make whatever, Mm -hmm. peanut butter cup, chip, uh, peanut butter cups. So why did we do that? Well, for one, it checked off all the same checklist, Mm -hmm. favorable price point to weight ratio, two-year shelf life, blah, 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 Um, high gross margin, and then big category, like... um, Mm -hmm not as big, but hydration is huge. And then liquid IV really paved the way for that, that form mm-hmm. factor. And we're going to about to do the same thing with coffee, um, mm-hmm. in, instant coffee, big, mm-hmm. big category, same deal. Shipping powder, light. It's called IQ, IQ Joe. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say like the, you know, we, again, this is where, you know, our platform isn't like, we're not like in the fresh sauce business. We're in the, we help home cooks business. We're in the meal kit without the meal kit business. So in your case, you know, coffee is brain food, right? I I think that if it, you know, innovation to me is one of the most fun things to discuss because you, you have all of these puzzle pieces, right? Like you said, there's the ops piece and the supply chain piece, and then there's the brand pillar piece. And does it make sense for us? And do we have right to be there from our, you know, from our consumer? Are they looking to us for this type of thing? Do they trust the brand in that category? You know, there's synergies with our buyers, let's say, or, you know, like there's so many things and you put them into this like big machine and then it spits out like coffee, hydration. (laughs) Like I, I see it very clearly, you know, for you guys. So do I. I. I look at it as like, what are the occasions throughout a day? And what I'm trying to work backwards from is how do you check off all those boxes and hit in a non-cannibalizing way, like let's say three occasions throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And then also they have to be relevant to like the point of your brand, which for us is like brain and body functionality. So right. satiation is one, like check bars hydration is two, caffeination is three, all three Mm -hmm. things highly relevant to to brain and body performance. Everything has to be dietarily totally coherent. They all have to be clean label, ultra low sugar, yada, yada, plant-based. And so ostensibly they're for very different, but actually they're, they're very aligned in terms of, they're just hitting different occasions. Yep. And y'all do sleep at some point too. I, so that was, so I actually did, I didn't do it. This guy, Tommy, who worked at, um, circle up or a VC that invested in us. Mm -hmm. I hit him up. He's like, he was an analyst there. And I was like, Tommy, I want to either do a sleep gummy or an instant Mm -hmm. coffee. I need you to like crunch the numbers on which one I should do. And he put together this like incredible analysis to his credit. And it's super interesting. It was like, who are all the players? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. How is the category trending online? Um, blah blah blah. And basically, it spit out like, you should do, you should do coffee. coffee. Um, yeah. and here's why. Yeah. No, uh, sleep is a really. So what am I? I'm obsessed with more and more high consumption cycle products that are super sticky. What is sticky? Drugs are sticky. So caffeine is sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, sleep is sticky mm-hmm. because it's highly habitual and you have like a melatonin CBD gummy or whatever that you take. If you take that, you're just going to take that every night forever, mm-hmm. especially if it works. Yep. Super sticky. Right. So bars actually are somewhat sticky, but every incremental category we move into is highly sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like another box to check. Yeah. No, I think it, and I want to go to the platforming thing because when I sent you my little pregame, you know, some thoughts email, um, 
you know, you brought up the platforming thing. And, you know, I think about this all the time. And I always, I think about, you know, sort of the Goldilocks, you know, there's like the, the baby bear, the mama bear, the papa bear, the mama bear, sort of the just right. And, you know, I mean, I think for those of us who are exposed to a lot of other companies, a lot of other founders, we like to read up on this stuff. It's really interesting what was successful and trying to sort of, you know, tease out what are the things that they all had in common. Um, and it's funny because I was about to use, you know, so I think I mentioned Miguel Leal on every podcast. He's, you know, he was the CMO at Kind and then the CMO at Cholula and a good friend of mine. And, and we were talking and he said, you know, Cholula, you know, for years tried to platform, but essentially consumers really just wanted hot sauce from Cholula. I just saw like they, they, McCormick just launched a line of Cholula salsas. So we'll see. Um, but there's, you know, there's something very clean, very tidy again, when it's high margin and it's super scalable and it's just sort of this like one product, it happens a lot in sauce, you know, it, it or, you know, chips type of thing. Like popcorn is a good one. You know, it's just like, down the line and it gets there quickly to your point. And it's just, you know, really strong on the, on the EBITDA and it just gets acquired. Um, I'm not building that. I don't know that I would know how necessarily. And I also don't think I would have that much fun doing that. The other side I think of is like these, you know, these companies that just launch a new product every other day and they're in so many categories and so many temperature states and it almost feels like it's too soon every time they innovate because there's inevitably some time that's needed to educate consumers and I don't see the efficiencies across those categories so I'm confused what they're doing. I also have no friggin' clue how they do that. I, I, I agree. I agree. No, I have a few that I'm going to have on the show and I'm going to just, you know, because there, there, there are a couple of brands that are in literally almost every set of the grocery store. And I'm, I just, they're not even necessarily huge brands, but they're just kind of everywhere. And I, I'm just, I'm kind of confused by it. I'm not sure, you know, if strategics, can I, I mean, I've been told don't be, even just being in two different temperature states is challenging for strategics, you know, from an acquisition perspective, not that that's everything, but it is something that goes into that popper of, <laughs> right, that plan. Um, so, you know, the mama bear, you know, that, that, what is that sort of like right down the middle where you're you're a platform where it protects you from cannibalization on products because there is that risk where it protects the brand, where you are welcomed into people's lives to your point in, you know, different day parts and different occasions. Um, that's tricky, but that's the, that's the fun part for me and, and when to do it. You know, we waited a long time, I think. I don't know, maybe not that long. But, you know, we're launching our second product line. It'll be four years after we launched our first. Um, yeah, it's not all that dissimilar from us. Yeah, and, it, you know, because it takes a while to get it right. I wanted to get the team right. I wanted to get, you know, all of our glitches worked out. I wanted to build a real brand so that there was pull for this new product line. And I can go to my retailers and say, there are, you know, we have 250,000 Pinterest followers. And the number one thing we hear is I can't find the product and I don't live near a Whole Foods, you know, like let's give them something to buy, you know? And um, I guess I'm assuming your thoughts are somewhat similar on there, but I'd like to hear them. Yeah, I actually don't think there is a Goldilocks zone. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a spectrum of risk. It's like drinking alcohol. A drop of alcohol is bad for you, and many drops is really bad for you, but it's like all a spectrum of risk. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think you just, I think you can win by having a zillion SKUs. People have won that way. Like on it was like a big supplement brand, but they had a zillion SKUs and then they got acquired by Unilever. So I would never want to do that. That sounds crazy. I don't know how they did that operationally. You're marketing so many different things with so many different value props. I don't want to do it, but you can win that way. I would argue that's a lower probability way to win, but it is a, it can be done. It is a way to win. Just challenging that for one second. But like, do you think that's specifically, I mean, supplements is, is different from food, right? Like there's probably one place that's making all of those 85 different pills where, you know, instead of building all new supply chains. So, well, let's even say, let's even say, I do see a lot more, I don't know. There's brands like, um, a perfect keto, right? Like they have a a Mm -hmm. ton of SKUs and it's more of a marketplace and that is one, one approach. Um, so it can be done and it can be done well. I think, and then, of course, the opposite is is the RX bar thing or, you know, or the Cholula thing, which is mm-hmm. that is the cleanest. I agree. It's the least fun, but it's probably, well, I was going to say it's probably the like, quote unquote best strategy if you want to get acquired, but it's only yeah. the best strategy if you think you can genuinely scale fast. And that's a huge caveat and a huge asterisk. So it's, it's like the it's risky, but so what thing? Like... Mm-hmm. If you, yeah, in theory, having one, scaling one form factor is like better, but the flip side is what if you could grow faster by having a couple? So now it's like you have to do your, your SWOT analysis on, okay, well, this is good and bad for these reasons. And this is good and bad for these reasons. So for me personally, for our specific context, I want to play in three categories. I don't want to play in four categories. I don't want to play in two categories. Definitely Mm -hmm. don't want to play in one category. Three categories is like the Goldilocks for me Mm -hmm. because I think we, and and our model is let's grow the like hero line, which will be bars. Similar to kind of the Quest bar model. You're going to, you know, Quest has chips and peanut butter cups and blah, 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 blah. But like 85% of the business is their bars. And so it's just kind of, cool and novel and ways to upsell and yada yada but you still have your hero the mothership and that's the model i i like personally so because i think it hedges a little bit against acquirers not being too pumped that you're in multiple categories because you can say look like yes we are but the mothership is this category and your risk is highly mitigated in category b and c because they're just a, you know, five, six, seven percent of the business each. Yeah, and if they're if they're profitable, right? They're nice little marketing tools for the mothership. Yeah, and like you, you may decide in a couple of years because not every brand is platformable. So mm-hmm. that's like a binary thing. Like, is platformable? Isn't like yes or no? Like Cholula, it sounds like wasn't really platformable. Still a massive brand, had a massive exit, but like. I'm just saying, like, to prove that you are even platformable in the first place, that doesn't have no value. Like, that's yep. that's useful, even just to know. Um, yeah. Because you can say, hey, we still have the mothership, but we've shown here that if you want to platformize, you know, blow out the platform, you can. Yep. All right. I had a couple of other questions, but I don't want to stress Liam out. Um because sometimes I go over. So I'm going to say one last thing. You had one of your shower thoughts about pilots and that they should get on the freaking loudspeaker <laughs> when turbulence happens and just say, hey, we're going to have a couple minutes of turbulence or even better, like before the turbulence start, just be like, hey, it's going to get bumpy for a few minutes. I don't know why they do that. And I, I just wanted to say, I agree with you. And it would make me less stressed out if they did that. So I don't think that there are any pilots listening. But if you know a pilot and you're listening, please tell them. So I just I'm sitting in that. the Delta Sky Miles uh, lounge, <laughs> which I'm not a member of. I had to purchase a credit card 
I just sign up for a credit card to then buy a day pass <laughs> so that I could get in a quiet pod so that I could record yeah. this. Well, so I, I appreciate that you did that. Thank you. Um, and just generally, thanks for coming on the show. It was really fun getting to talk to you after reading you for this long. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. And Liam, thank you for engineering the show as always. And um, couldn't do it without you. Listeners, I have, um, like I said at the beginning, next week is episode 200, which is kind of crazy. Um, like It's like 200,000 downloads and we're up to like 2,500 downloads a week or something like that. I don't know if that's good or what. I don't care. I'm just happy that you're listening and I'm happy that it's helpful. Um, and we have a little special guest. He's, you know, he's been in this game for a while and he's got a lot of really important lessons for all of us to, to learn from. So um, I thank everyone for listening and I'll be back next week with my 200th episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.